And I love watching the remote hearings. Oh, uh, I don't. I'm sick of them. <laughs> it's my favorite thing to do. My, I, it's like a pastime. Every time there's a remote hearing, I watch it. And then I take notes on like, can you please, can you please unmute? Wait. Am I am I muted? Am am I, I'm, I'm, you, I'm unmuted. Yeah. When are you gonna unmute me? You know. <laughs> no, that's it. I mean, welcome to a Democratic caucus call. I mean, Steny, unmute, unmute, Steny, unmute. <laughs> Welcome to Article One, a show about lawmakers, legislating, and the politics that make Congress work. I'm your host, Molly Hooper, longtime Capitol Hill reporter sharing with you my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, the House, on the trail, and behind the scenes. That voice you heard at the top of the show? Well, that's House Rules Committee Chairman Jim McGovern, who represents Massachusetts' 2nd Congressional District. We talk remote voting in the House, the outlook for a coronavirus deal, and the need for earmarks. McGovern also delves into how he ended up on the powerful Rules Committee nearly two decades ago, and the accomplishments he has achieved over that time. Keep in mind, we spoke in mid-October, but negotiations over a COVID recovery package have not changed much. Please, if you enjoy what you hear, share this podcast with a friend and leave a rating or review. Now, on to the conversation. How, how has that been going? Just first off, before I get into your legislative accomplishments, how has this new normal of remote hearings and remote voting been working? I think, I think better than I thought. I mean, look, um, it, as you know, it was a heavy lift to try to you know, get buy-in on um, remote hearings and, on, um, and, um, and remote voting by proxy. Mm-hmm. But we did it. And um, it is probably the most transparent you know, I mean, when you vote by proxy, you have to, I have to announce that you voted by proxy. And then they, the clerk announces you voted by proxy and you have to send a letter. I mean, it's like, you know, the whole world knows how you voted. So it's worked out fine, but th- I want this to be temporary. I don't want this to be, you know, a substitute for in here, in-person hearings or in-person voting. And we get beyond this pandemic, we can talk about, you know, how we bring this to a close, but uh, it has served us well during the pandemic. And, um, but, uh, you know, we, you've learned that we have members that are at various levels in terms of their technological uh, knowledge and, um, you know, everything from not being able to unmute to uh, not shutting it off. And so you hear them having phone calls. So it's, you know, but I, I think it's gone okay. Yeah. How, how has the House administrations been able to implement this remote hearing? Because sometimes these, these technological fails are not necessarily due to a member unmuting or not muting or ha- talking to somebody else, but it's because there are technical difficulties with the actual system. We've run into some glitches in the Rules Committee hearings. Look, you know, it's an old building, right? And, um, and quite frankly, they're, I think if we're all going to be using the same systems, I mean, there, there needs to be some, there have been some upgrades and needs to continue to be some upgrades. I mean, this is, none of this stuff is foolproof, right? I mean, we all, I mean, as, for as advanced as we all think we are, uh, in terms of technology, I mean, if I'm talking to you from a different part of my district, you know, I'll, I'll be going in and out, right? And, or you won't be able to hear me, or I won't, we won't be able to connect. Right. And sometimes you overload a system. But again, we all need to take note of what needs to be improved. And hopefully we get through this pandemic and then we can get back to normal. But let's plan for 
the future in a way if we ever are in a situation like this again. So how much has this sort of helped out that the effort of getting broadband access across the country? I hope it's helped out a lot. I mean, I just um, look, it, what we need is we need people to coalesce around an infrastructure bill uh, so that we can actually do that. Right. I mean, the president said he was for an infrastructure bill when he ran for president. And I don't know if that'll happen, but uh, maybe it's the steroids. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No comment. No comment. Right. <laughs> Maybe it's the roids. Um, right. Speaking of steroids, just kidding. How I know that by the time this airs, there will be a little bit of a lag. But at okay. this point, what, what's your outlook in terms of the House and the Senate passing a pass a COVID relief package that could make it to the president's desk before Election Day? Yeah, I talked to Pelosi still, you know, talking to Mnuchin and, and we're still trying to find, you know, a way, a way forward, and I think um, are we on record? Yeah, now we are on the record. Listen, this is this is just chatting, but yeah, p- because people want to know what you're no, thinking. No, no, that, no, that's fine. I didn't know what this was part of the podcast. I was I've been all over the oh, place. Oh, this. Oh, yeah, no, this podcast is about being all over the place. People okay, just right, know yeah. what you're thinking. That's right. The real, the real McGovern. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the so the so the deal is that um, uh, you know the uh, negotiations are still going. On and, and the hope is that we can get to something. Okay. Nobody has given up hope. But look, here's the deal. Uh, you know, I think what the president wants is a bunch of money that he can hand out to his friends. Um, and what we're saying is, yeah, we, we need the money, but we need to make sure it's directed to where it is needed most. We need to make sure that, you know, small businesses, not just the big super duper companies are getting uh, relief. We need, to, we need to keep our restaurants open. We need money for state, state and local governments. I mean, I mean, revenues are down because of businesses closing and shutdowns, and we don't want them to have to, you know, lay off uh, essential uh, employees like first responders. Uh, we need to make sure our hospitals are prepared because, you know, whether the president wants to admit it or not, the numbers are going up, um, in part because he's a terrible, terrible, lousy example to this country. I mean, holding these outdoor rallies with, uh, holding these rallies with no people with no masks and, and his, you know, basically downplaying the the impact of the of the virus. I mean, I've lost people in my constituents of mine, people I know. Um, I've talked to you know husbands and wives and sons and daughters of people who have suffered from this, who died and who couldn't visit their loved one in the hospital. It's painful, and and I, I mean, this is not a joke. This is this is not a this is serious, and and it really is. Um, it's upsetting. Uh, that he has so mismanaged this. Um, I mean, his delay has been deadly. His de- mismanagement has been deadly, and it's, it's criminal. And I, 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 I have no, I have no more patience for his theatrics. I, 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 I was in a supermarket in Worcester the other day, and a, and a woman came up to me, and you know, I was wearing my, I was wearing my John Lewis Good Trouble mask, oh, uh-huh. right? Um, and uh, she said, Jim McGovern, is that you behind that? I said, Yeah. She said. I, make it stop. Make him go away. I can't stand it anymore. You know, it's just, I just can't turn on the TV. This is so outrageous. It is so maddening. And I hear that everywhere I go. Even people who I think might have voted for him in the last election, I think they're tired of the show. They're ready to turn the channel. Well, even if the president doesn't win this election, there's still going to be several months 
where he's a lame duck president? And how likely is it that anything will happen in terms of COVID relief? Because as you were saying, state and local governments need money. Small businesses need money. People who are on unemployment, child care, schools. I mean, that, that, how, how likely is a deal going to be struck? I mean, what Secretary Mnuchin, when he's speaking to Pelosi, I'm sure that he's serious, but he also has that other wrinkle of Mitch McConnell. Yeah, and, Mitch McConnell and, and Donald Trump. I mean, yeah, you know, that's I mean, cool. There's that. I'm surprised Mnuchin's not in a neck race from having whiplash dealing with the guy he works for. I mean, one day you're sitting down negotiating, and then the next day the president says, we're done, no more, it's over. And then the stock market takes a dip. He's, oh, no, no, well, we're going to do something. You know, and then and then the president's like, go big or go home. And then Mitch McConnell says, I don't want to do anything. The, the deal is, we've known we've had to do something for five, six months. And, and we passed the HEROES Act, and they've done not a damn thing. Now, I think Secretary Mnuchin is trying to work out a deal. The question is, well, well you know, what side of the bed does his boss get up? In the uh, in the morning, and you know, is he in a good mood or bad mood, or is he? And then the other issue is is Mitch McConnell. So, all I could tell you is that Pelosi is in you know is in Washington on the phone with him every day, trying to find ways to resolve the differences. But I think she's also correct in saying we have to have something that's going to really help the people of this country. And so, this is not a personal slush fund for Donald Trump. And this this we we have to have a plan to deal. With this virus, I mean, the numbers are going in the, in the wrong direction. We need to stop the virus. We need to control the virus. We need to save lives, and we need to get this economy moving again. And that's you know, that's all of our discussions with all of our committee chairs have been around that. And so my hope is that we can get to, we can get to yes, um, and you know, and I think the idea that the Senate is in session to deal with this Supreme Court nominee, I mean, they could do that the day after the election. If they wanted to, I mean, the, the idea that that's more important, you know, ramming down the throats of the American people who do not want her and who do not want the Senate doing this, but ramming down their throats, a right wing judge that is more important than helping keep a restaurant open or helping kids go back to school safely. It is despicable. Very frustrating for people watching and looking at Washington, D.C., you know, setting aside the Supreme Court nomination. The Senate is, for all intents and purposes, they're able to do their work. You know, why Why isn't Congress meeting? This is an essential service that members of Congress, I mean, people vote for you to go represent their needs and, and bring whatever you need to bring back to the district. And this COVID relief package, this stimulus package, it seems like that's a very big part of it. And I guess there's a little confusion as to why Congress isn't in session, making sure that that happens. So we are told, I mean, first of all, we voted twice. Well, that's we voted true. Two bills, right? I that's mean, I mean what else? And the second bill we voted on is one that we negotiated with ourselves to lower the, I know. the price tag of the bill. So we're, I mean, it's like <laughs> we cut $1.2 trillion off of the price tag. So we're, we're negotiating with ourselves, trying to create a, you know, an opportunity for them to say yes. Right. So Pelosi and Hoyer have said to us, look, when we, when we left uh, and come back for the election, look, you are on call, um, you know, with a, we'll give you 24-hour notice. If we can get something, you know, you were back here in 24 hours and we're going to do this. Right. So we can come back and vote on a third bill. But if the Senate's not going to take it up and if right. Trump is not going to support it, what are we doing? Right. I mean, that's true. And, and I, you know, and I worry if we don't get something before the election and Trump, which I, I, I hope and pray and he loses. Uh, but, it, it, you know, what will his mindset be then? 
I mean, would it be like, I don't care? One thing that's been consistent about Donald Trump is that he cares about only one thing, and that's Donald Trump. He didn't give a damn about my constituents or regular people. I mean, it's all about him. And so if he loses, does that mean he has a, a meltdown and walks away? I mean, he doesn't want to you know, do anything and wants the country to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to hurt even more. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising to any of us if that's what he decides. But uh, at that point, I hope there are some adults in the Senate that will say, you know what, we got to do something because right. the election's over with and we, we, we got to help the people of this country. Well, let me let me just ask you, let me just pivot a little bit, because, you know, you have been in Congress for more than 20 years and you were and Jeff and I were talking about this. You had been a staffer on the Rules yeah. Committee. So, so you know how the House works. I mean, you were working for Mr. Moakley. Mr. Moakley was an institution, for those who don't know, from Massachusetts. Mr. Rules himself. Tell me, first of all, what do you think are among your greatest legislative accomplishments that you've been able to show the people who elect you every two years what you can do for them and the country. Yeah, as you also, as you pointed out to you before, Joe Moakley, when I was in college uh, at American University, I was a paid intern for George McGovern. That's no right. relation. Thought he had a great last name, you know. <laughs> but uh, but I worked for two people that um, you know basically uh, showed me uh, that um, politics can be an honorable profession and that it's about helping people. And you know, so I mean, in terms of legislative accomplishments, I mean, I you know I help save the land and water conservation uh, fund program. New Gingrich, I just got elected, New Gingrich zeroed it out. Uh, it's a program that protects open space. Uh, every city and town, almost in the country, has taken advantage of it, he zeroed it out. As a freshman, I had an amendment to, re to replenish its funding and thought I was gonna get creamed and I won. And uh, I've been supporting that program uh, ever since. Um, and that was in 1996, right? Or the 1997? Yeah, yeah, 97 and 98. I elected in 96, it was the first term. Just so our listeners know, that was shortly after. I mean, that was like two years after the Republicans had retaken control of the House for the first time in 40 years. Right. right. So, so this would not be necessarily a time when you'd think a, a liberal progressive Democrat from Massachusetts would get much done, much done not as a freshman all. member. Yeah, no, you know... Um, George McGovern and Joe Moakley, when I get sworn in, uh, uh -huh. so January 1997, they sat with me on the House floor. Oh, boy. And and, uh, and I asked them both, I mean, what is the best advice you can give me to be a good member of Congress? And Joe Moakley's advice, which was good advice, was get to know everybody on a first name basis, get to know where they have spouses, dogs, cats, canaries, kids, whatever, um, and start trying to build a personal relationship with them. Because not everything you do here is a big ideological, you know, <laughs> right. battle. Right? I mean, some people want to help you out because they like you. And I thought that was good advice. And George McGovern's advice to me was the same advice that was given to him when he first got elected to Congress. And he said, you know, if you really want to be a good member of Congress, you have to get over the fear of losing an election. Because if all you're worried about is the next election, then you're going to just be a reflection of whatever the latest public opinion poll is. And you're not going to give people your best judgment. And I thought that was good advice too. Now, I got to be honest with you. I don't think I'm quite over the fear of losing an election. <laughs> But um, every time there's a tough vote, I, I, I kind of think of like, what is the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, you know, when we finish here, I mean, you know, you have to look back and say, am I proud of my service? Or was I just, uh, you know, a weather vane? When B Bill Clinton was president, uh, you know, George McGovern was the ambassador to the Food and Agriculture Organization in Rome. And he had this idea about, you know, that we should have a global school feeding program for the, all the world's children. And so I said, you know, okay, you know, let's do it. And so um, I, I remember setting up a meeting 
with Bill Clinton and George McGovern and me. We met in the main meeting room off the Oval Office. Uh-huh. And I remember he, Clinton brought most of his cabinet there. And I was like, <laughs> and he said, okay, I'm here to listen. And George McGovern said, Jim, and you begin. <laughs> I was like, oh, Jesus, how did it? Anyway, we talked about this idea and Bill Clinton uh, said, it sounds like a great idea. Uh-huh. Why haven't we done it? And, you know, I remember Sandy Berger was there and the head of USAID was there. Uh, uh, Dan Glickman, USDA was there, head of the Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I, can we get a pilot program going until they can get legislation up? And then Dan Glickman said, I come up with, you know, like $200 million or something like that. And we began the, a, a pilot project. I wrote the legislation. We named it after George McGovern and Robert Dole, called the George wow. McGovern Robert Dole Food for Education Program. Dick Durbin and, uh, you know, it was a champion of it over in the in the Senate. And anyway, uh, we, we got it into, um, it passed, got it into law and it's feeding tens of millions of children every year in the poorest countries around the world. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of the of the work I've done to bring federal resources back to my hometown here in Worcester and surrounding communities. Um, I'm proud of the fact that the city of Worcester, which is the second largest city in New England, the second largest city in Massachusetts, is a much more vibrant and uh, progressive-minded and forward-thinking city than it was when I first got elected. And, you know, there's lots of federal resources that have been used to spur economic development here um, that I'm really, really proud of. Uh, I've taken areas that have been blight and turned them into communities that have a future um, or taken blighted areas and helped develop, you know, job parks there. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. I just, I uh, just got into the defense bill. Uh, my wounded warriors uh, service dog bill, which. Oh boy, I, that's great. I mean, I know I'm not supposed to have an opinion on these things, but I've, I've tracked that and that's, I didn't know that was in the defense bill. It is. Yeah. So because we've been funding it in appropriations, you know, right. year to year. Now we, we know enough that it, we can, we should make it permanent. So uh-huh. it's in there, but you know, look, training a service dog for, uh, you know, to help a veteran who is suffering from brain trauma is expensive. VA doesn't cover the cost. So this is a program that covers the cost to help veterans get what they need. Um, you know, I passed the Magnitsky Act. I was going to ask about the Magnitsky Act. I mean, yeah. that's the one that, that, that essentially provoked Putin to end all adoptions, right? To the U.S. adoption. He did. did. It ticked him off a little bit. Right. But then, um, you know, uh, working with Chris Smith of New Jersey, we expanded it to a global Magnitsky Act. So um, it's it's, it's a smart way to hold human rights violators and people guilty of corruption accountable without punishing an entire people in a country. So you can target your sanctions. I I chair the uh, Executive Commission on China with Marco Rubio. We've done lots of human rights uh, bills on, on China. So we've, you know. Can you explain that for a second? Just the executive commission on China. I was going through all the congressional member organizations and the different commissions that Congress has. What exactly does that commission do? What, how is that different than a committee? Well, it, it, cause it's, it's a house Senate commission. Uh, okay. we, they, it was created when we passed a, a permanent uh, normal trade relations with China as a way to make sure that human rights is not an afterthought. Um, okay. And I guess you could, I don't know why they created commission versus the committee, but it, it's kind of the same thing. So, th- so this would be like the Uyghur. The Uyghur bills, the bills on Tibet. Okay. Uh, you know, working with Senator Rubio, we have, we have passed more legislation dealing with human rights in China in these last two years than I think in the previous 10 years combined. 
And is and the president signed this? He the president has signed it. Sometimes I think reluctantly, but uh, I think his aides um, urged him to do the right thing on this, and so we are obviously grateful for that. So I mean, there's you know, and being on the rules committee, I mean, you get to have your fingerprints on on everything. So I do a lot of work on hunger and food insecurity here domestically. I also I also continue to have a waiver to sit on the agriculture committee because I think Speaker Pelosi wants somebody on the ag committee who's worried about our food and nutrition programs and not just about you know a subsidy for this crop or that crop or this crop right uh, because that's where the SNAP program is and how how agricultural really is Worcester well Worcester is not agricultural but in the last redistricting I as I assumed many rural areas in Worcester oh I go out to the Pioneer Valley out to Northampton out. Uh, up to Greenfield. I've got about 2,000 farms in my district. Oh, wow. Mostly small and medium sized farms. But, you know, agriculture, believe it or not, is an important part of Massachusetts' economy. And um, I'm going to go tour Cranberry Bog on, on Friday. So, the bogs. Uh, so, um, so it's, um, it's relevant. But also, these food and nutrition programs like SNAP are, are vital to my constituents. And I also uh, chair the Food is Me- Medicine Working Group. That we have in Congress, uh, oh, trying yeah. to get our, and I've got some legislation as well to try to advance the, the the tie-in between food and nutrition and medicine. A lot of doctors who go to medical school don't really learn very much about nutrition and medical. No, school. they don't. And, just, and let me just tell you this: as somebody who has celiac sprue, and I I was diagnosed back in 1998 before it was even a thing. Doctors do need to know a lot more about the the relation between food and medicine because I'm allergic to a lot of medicine because it uses products that have gluten. I mean, it sounds silly, but I would have doctors prescribing things for me that I could, that I was allergic to. Well, I mean, and here's the deal. Many people who, have, who are diabetics might not be diabetics if they were on a different diet early on. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can prevent heart attacks with diet. You can, I mean, there's so much. And I've, I, and I've over the years, become great friends with Francis Collins, uh, the head of NIH. And, oh. and he's, he's now moving NIH to focus more on this issue of food is, is medicine and trying to highlight that as well. And so, you know, I think this is the direction we're going mm-hmm. and it's moving slowly, but it's going, we're going in the right direction. And so, you know, I have a bill that would, uh, that I'm hoping to get, uh, you know, into, into one of the bigger bills that would set up a, uh, a program to, uh, within Medicare for medically tailored meals for patients who are released from hospitals. I mean, one of the things uh-huh. that we have learned is that one of the, number one reasons why people who have major operations or severe treatments and they go home end up back in the hospital prematurely is lack of nutrition they're weak so the idea of giving them a bag of groceries and say make your dinner they don't um and so we we can prescribe dietary dietary diet specific meals Mm -hmm. that will help you recover that will be brought to your house so you could have two or three meals a day uh until you get back on your feet and you get your strength back See, see, these are the things that a lot of people don't hear about because every, because the the news world is so focused on what did we tweet this day? What did she say that day? You know, the back and forth with all these big issues. But really, Congress is made up of 535 members who are trying to accomplish, you know, what might not be massive bits of legislation, but ideas that can turn into big deals, you know, right. that don't and, necessarily and- get the coverage. Right. You know, as, you know, George McGovern used to say to me, you know, you don't have to agree with everything to agree on something. Let me just say, let me just point out to our, our listeners. 
Chris Smith is pretty conservative. Right, <laughs> Marco yeah, Rubio yeah. is a Republican from Florida who ran for president. And I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a liberal Democrat from, from Massachusetts. You know, <laughs> exactly. A progressive who tried to redeploy right, troops yeah. from Iraq. I mean. Right. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, we, whether we agree on human rights in China or whether we agree on, you know, on, on issues of, I, I work with Jackie Walorski and Roger Marshall on, on issues of nutrition. Oh my gosh. And one of my favorite people that I work with for many years on this was Joanne Emerson, um, who I love and adore. Um, yeah. And she, uh, you know, was, was an incredible ally. That's when the Republicans were in control because she would always help me sneak things into things. So I really, you know, I will ever be grateful to her for that. Right. I wanted to pick up on a point that you had mentioned earlier about getting federal dollars back to your district. As chairman of the Rules Committee, and as somebody, from my perspective, I enjoy watching these member day hearings, and I enjoy watching sort of like the process of the rules in the House. I mean, you recently had a very um, sort of enlightening members day hearing where members were coming to say what they would like in terms of rules changes for the 117th Congress. And one issue that kept kind of coming up was this idea of congressionally directed spending, also known as earmarks. How likely is that? And that's that's really for all intents and purposes, taxpaying dollars coming back to the taxpayers that you represent. I am very biased when it comes to legislative branch. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm not necessarily Democrat or Republican, but but legislative. Yes, all the way. I want my congressman, I want Don Beyer to get as much money as he can for Arlington, Virginia. Thank you very much. And one of the ways to do that is through earmarks. How likely is it that earmarks will be coming back, do you think? I hope they come back. I really do. Um, I think, I think um, one, as you mentioned, the idea that we're ceding all this power to the executive branch, no matter who the president is, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It, it, it's almost as if we're all saying, well, I can't, I can't trust me to do what's right for my district. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. Yeah, you, know, you, you have to put a, a process in place that's transparent with checks and balances. Yeah, we, we could do that. And by the way, it's not just people like me who think we should bring it back. You heard on the, on the, uh, the uh, uh, Members' Day in the Rules Committee, Tom Cole, uh, my ranking member, Republican for Oklahoma, thinks it's a good idea. Yep. We were, we were more likely to pass appropriations bills in a bipartisan way when people had you know, skin in the game. You know, and now appropriations bills have just become, you know, depending on who's in power, a partisan vote. And you're like, this is not right, right? This is not the mm -hmm. way it's supposed to be. I think it'd be less likely would have government shutdowns if we had, you know, congressionally directed spending brought back. Um, and, you know, and, you know, I mentioned to you about the progress in my home city of Worcester. Much of that was because I was able to earmark when I first got into Congress. Because if, I, if we had to rely on the whims or, wish, or wishes of whoever the, you know, the secretary of this or secretary of that is, I mean, right. be, we would have no, we would have nothing accomplished here. Well, nobody knows the district like you know your district. Absolutely. And I, so, you know, we'll or see what happens. Or you should know your district. <laughs> right, right. And but we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, obviously we have, you know, we have to see who the president is. Right. Um, and we'll have to see what happens in the Senate. Trump at one point actually said he was for earmarks. Uh, but then then the next day, he was, I don't know, he's depending Maybe on Maybe he talked to somebody in the Freedom Caucus, because I would think that earmarks would be something that, as a businessman, he would have embraced up front. He's like, all we have to do is give them some money for their districts and they'll vote with for us? What are we doing here? I mean, it's so pragmatic. It seems silly, but it, it's just... Well, I mean, but, but nobody that's... Nobody knows your district like you do. And guess what? The people who were violating that, 
went to jail. They went to prison. Right. But here's the deal. We all ran for office to help the people that we now represent. Right. I mean, why, why would I why would I want to delegate that ability to help my people to somebody else, to a bureaucracy? And I love all the people who work in our agencies. But the bottom line is, I you know, I, I know what is what will work in my district and what won't work in my district and, you know, where some money might create additional state matches and private matches, and we can actually right. build some. And, I, and I've got a zillion examples here to point out where it has, been, has worked. And so, so I, hope, I hope we get to bring it back. Okay. Now, let me just transition to your role as the chairman of the Rules Committee. A lot of people out there don't understand why does the House need a Rules Committee? What is a Rules Committee? And so, like, in a nutshell, tell people why your job is so important, why you're sort of the gatekeeper. And to, as to what goes on on the floor. If we didn't have a rules committee, we'd be the Senate. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> but with a, you'd really never get anything done. I mean, people, right. whew, we'd be the Senate. Yeah, but the rules committee is like the traffic cop of Congress. Um, you know, I mean, all, mostly all legislation that goes to the floor comes to, before the rules committee. Sometimes we have to make changes to the underlying text of a bill before it goes to the floor. Floor. We decide what amendments can be made in order, you know, which ones we're not going to make in order, um, you know, or whether we, we we have a closed rule or, you know, or a structured rule, whatever. So being on the Rules Committee, any member on the Rules Committee has some influence in what any bill looks like before it goes to the House floor. So that's where a lot of the power comes from. So I have chairman all the time who say, just shh. No, it's like Alec Guinness in the Bridge of the River Kwai. Don't touch my bridge, right? <laughs> Perfect. Right? You know, they right. want nothing. And then you get other members say, I want everything, right? And so it's this constant battle. Uh, I am proud of the fact that we have made more amendments in order than any of the Congress um, in history. And also, we've been able to figure out a way to make amendments in order during this pandemic when it takes an average of about an hour and a half to cast each vote. We've, 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 we've helped encourage on block voting so we can make dozens and dozens and dozens of amendments in order, but we would vote for them, you know, as an as a, on block rather than one at a time. I gotcha. And so, um, but the rules committee, you know, is one of the most powerful committees um, in the Congress that a lot of people don't know about. A lot of members don't know about it until they get elected and to, until they have to come and learn what the rules committee is about. And again, you know, I worked for the former chair of the rules committee, Joe Moakley from Boston, when South Boston, when he was uh, way back when. And, um, you know, Moakley, you know, was a great mentor to me because, you know, he always erred on the side of trying to be as accommodating as you possibly could be, mm -hmm. even to people you disagree with. And I've tried to do that. I mean, I'm not perfect, uh, but the bottom line is uh, we have tried to accommodate the Republicans more than they tried to accommodate me when I was in the minority, uh, which is not a high, it, it wasn't a high threshold to overcome uh, because- Wait, was, um, was, was that, wait a second, was Tom Cole, he, was he chairman of the he, rules? He wasn't, no, he was ranked, okay, because that it was Pete Sessions. Right, right, no. And let me just say this about Tom Cole, one of the most honorable, decent people I have ever met in or out of politics, seriously. Right. He cares about this institution. He's the real deal. He and I don't, agree on much i mean you know i mean he's conservative from oklahoma i'm like you know the <laughs> liberal from massachusetts but you know um even on very difficult matters you know he puts the institution first let me just give you one example we you know we have to deal with everything we had a, we had a we had to construct the rules for impeachment we had to we had to move the impeachment resolution to the floor 
talk about a contentious issue and you saw it how it played out in the other committees it was like combat right it was like it was like something it was like in the rules committee we handled it very differently mm-hmm. now cole was very much against the impeachment i was very much for it we have some cons- very conservative members in the rules committee some very liberal members i mean it was a pretty a lot lots could go wrong but we both managed it in a way where it was civil and one of the i always tell people one of the highest compliments that i think i've ever received was lawrence o'donnell on his show referred to Cole and me and saying that we just delivered the American people a masterclass in civility. And I thought it meant so much to me because because I think that's what's missing in so much of our politics. I mean, decency and civility. And so I am really lucky. I don't want to say this to Kevin McCarthy. I'm afraid he'll take Cole off of the rules committee. <laughs> I'm grateful that he is on the rules committee because he's a good man and he gets it and he cares about this country. And I try to try, you know, if something's important to him, we try to help get him what he needs. And I think that's the way uh, it should operate. That's the way it operated when Joe Moakley was uh, uh, was chairman. And, and again, it's the rules committee, it's a tightrope because, like I said, we get some members who, you know, don't, don't want you to t- open anything up, don't want to take a tough vote on anything. Right. And I get it, you know, but when you cut, when you get elected to the Congress, you got to vote. Well, and and that's I think the attitude that Tom Cole takes as well. Having talked to him for so many times over the past, you know, so so many years because he's been there, you know, he really is an institutionalist and somebody who says, "Listen, the easiest vote you can take is a no. You've got to show up. This is a team sport. We're here on a team, and sometimes you're going to have to take tough votes, and that's just the way it is. But you didn't come here to Congress to take easy votes all the time." You know, there's decisions yeah, no. you have to make, and you just have to, and you have to get along with these everybody for the most so part. You work with these people, as, as you know. Tom, and, and you, to give you an example of my admiration for for Tom Cole. Um, and, and, I, and to be fair, just, just you know, I've heard him say very nice things and complimentary things about the way that you run the rules committee. But just you know, so you know, one of the things you get this is a minor thing, but one of the things you get to do when you become chairman of a committee is you get to decide on the artwork in the um, in the committee room, right? <laughs> And uh, so, you know, I've David Dreyer had, I don't know, California art, I guess. I don't know. And, and, and Sessions had Texas art, right? So, right. so I, you know, I, I try to bring a little bit of Massachusetts into the uh, room. But Tom Cole, as you know, has been a champion of uh, Native American issues. He's, you know, he himself, you know, has Native American blood in his Absolutely. ancestry. Um, and he has a uh, an aunt who's uh, a member of the Chicksaw Nation named Teata, who was a uh, a performer um, who was well known, um, you know, many many years ago. So if you notice in the Rules Committee, you know, the artwork behind him is a is a picture of Teata, the his his relative. And that's really cool. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So you have to when you you can see it behind him on camera, but next go in the Rules Committee and. And you can see it, and um, and you know I know it meant a lot to him, but it but it, it meant a lot to me as well because um, he works as hard as I do up there, and he puts in the hours. And, pe- and people don't seem to realize, like when you're saying that chairmen come before your committee, essentially when when people co- come before your committee, what would be playing out on the House floor is essentially playing out in front of the Rules Committee because you right. have members who want to amend the bill on the floor, mm-hmm. having to make their case to allow the amendment on the floor to you guys. So <laughs> you guys are there for hours upon hours listening to amendment upon amendment. Now, whether those amendments actually get a vote on the floor is a different matter. 
But right. you're you're essentially hearing the whole debate front and center for a long time. No, I, I am. And um, sometimes the Rules Committee could be a place of exciting conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have time limits in the Rules Committee, which means that it can go on and on and on. Uh, sometimes we have people who testify before the Rules Committee who are succinct and get right to the point, and I appreciate it. Sometimes they don't. And there's this gigantic chandelier above the table. And I'm like, you know, and I, I got to be honest, there, there are days I'm like, please fall, you know, please end this. And it never happens. But, um, <laughs> and that is, that's a good looking chandelier. I have, I have been in that room looking at that chandelier many a times. It's very beautiful. But, if it, but, but, but you know, if it fell, it would end the testimony. If it fell, it would end the testimony. For sure. It would end the testimony and the stenography of the of yes. the session. So you keep mentioning and referring to Mr. Moakley. Uh, that sort of seems like it was, you know, being a staffer on the Rules Committee before you actually became the chairman of it. Seems like that's a, an added benefit of having that experience. How has it informed what you are doing now? Because he, he was a role model. I mean, he, 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 Joe Moakley was a decent, good man. I mean... You know, I loved him. I mean, he was the, he was the best. And the reason why I'm on the rules committee, I, I mean, I got elected to Congress and we served together for a few years. And then um, in 2001, he was diagnosed with leukemia and he had, um, and it, but it was complicated because he had been the recipient uh, of a liver transplant and, and the, he, he could, you couldn't treat one without, uh, you know, affecting the other. I mean, so there was, so the doctor basically said you have three months to live. And, um, and so he, he called me um, and he said, look, um, you know, this is the deal. I've got three months to live. And um, but, I, you know, I, I got to I, I need you to I need you to go on to the rules committee. And I'm like, well, I'm on the transportation committee. And the resources committee says, no, you're going to go on the rules committee. Tip O'Neill was on the rules committee before he ran for leadership. He mm-hmm. put me on the rules committee. We need somebody from Massachusetts to be on the rules committee. And I remember he went. Dick Gephardt had already promised that seat uh to the congressional black caucus oh and um you know the next op- the next available seat so i said to him i had read that in like roll call or something he says don't worry so he called dick Gephardt up who then was the minority leader and he said uh, you know dick i've got three months to live and Gephardt said oh i'm so sorry anything i could do for you just let me know i'll do it he says just one you name it it's done mcgovern has to go on the rules committee um and um and so, <laughs> how do you how do you argue with that? Right. So Gephardt called me, um, and he said, "Look at uh, Tony Hall, who was from uh, I was was leaving, but it, it, this was a few months after Moakley died." And he said, "I know I promised that he would be on the rules committee, but uh, I need to keep this other promise." And he said, w- w- "Can you work with me on it?" So we we negotiated a deal where they, he put Elsie Hastings on, but then the agreement was that I would get Tony Hall's seat, but I would have added seniority so I would be where I was where Moakley wanted me to be okay. I remember right, right before he died Moakley said to me look you know you get on the rules committee and do me a favor don't do anything stupid like run for senate he said because given your views you can't win um uh but and I said okay um he says because you know if you you might be chairman someday if you are patient and he said remember this Good waiters get good tips. And uh, so I waited. So this is where I am. Good waiters get good tips. I like that. Yeah, so, 
but I learned a lot from about how to how to how to run the committee with civility, the importance of decency, the importance of having a sense of humor every once in a while too. Because you know, I mean, you gotta otherwise you go crazy. Especially since Congress deals with a lot of heady issues, and sometimes things are just so not great, so bad that all you can do is kind of laugh. Just you know, you have to break it up a little bit and be more human. And that's it. I mean, every once in a while, you have to remind yourself that you're human, and the people that you're working with are human. And um, so, so he was, um, and and Joe Moakley was a guy who you know who used to always say to me, he'd say, "I don't know everything," and you know, the the, the worst members of Congress are the people who think they know everything, the know-it-alls. I learn something new every day. So keep an open mind and don't be afraid to change your mind. George McGovern said that you said that too. You know, I mean, you know, sometimes people can change their position. We want we if you're voting the wrong way and I get you to change your position, why should I criticize you for that? If you did the right thing, you know, evolving is a good thing, right? I mean, I'd like to think that I know more today than I did then yesterday. And I'd like to think next week I'll even know more than I do today. And then a month from now I'll be brilliant, right? I mean, so we, you know, we we have to do you think that there's a lot, do you think that too many members in Congress think they know it all, know too much, or they're just not willing to open their minds on both sides of the aisle? Yeah, I do. I mean, I look at, I, I, I think I, I, sometimes, sometimes I do. Sometimes I think, you know, it's like my way or the highway. And the deal is, look, I would like to win a hundred percent of everything I want all the time, mm-hmm. but I, I, you know, I can't even get a hundred percent agreement with my wife. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, like, if I can get, you know, 80%, boy, that's that's not bad. Or even 70% or 65%. I mean, it's this, 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 it all has to be perfect or nothing. And either there's no such thing as a perfect bill. There's no such thing as a perfect congressman, a perfect politician. You know, I voted for one once in my life. That's when I first ran for office. And then, you know, I served two years and I ran for reelection and I wasn't so perfect anymore. <laughs> But I voted for me anyway because I was better than the guy who was running against me. So, um, and, and and that's one of the, that's one of the challenge challenges right now. You know, is that we have some people who it is. You know, if you're not perfect in every way, then you're not a good member of Congress. My my, I want to be as perfect as I can. But here's the deal: I want to get something done. Right. So I mean, you know, so I'm I'm not interested in. 20 years from now, someone say, oh, boy, he gave a speech on a perfect policy, but then never got anything done. Right. right. I I would rather have people say, you know, this is what I aspire to do. I can't get it all now, but I move the ball in the right direction. Because, again, politics is supposed to be about helping people. And if it, if it ceases to be that, then we have a problem. And I worry sometimes that the nature of our politics now um, is not is not focused as much on people uh, as it is on winning and ambition and, you know, destroying people. And, and look at it, I know this sounds partisan, but I think Trump has, has so coarsened our politics. Um, I, I really worry that um, if there's not a change in, um, in November, that um, I, I'm just, I'm worried that we won't be able to turn the ship around. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's interesting about that and, and you bring up president Trump and not being perfect and, and, President Trump, on some of the major issues that you've fought for, he actually kind of is on your back, the ideas. I mean, he does, he's trying to pull troops out of Afghanistan, out of Iraq, and that's something that you've fought for in the past. He's trying to crack down on China. 
whether it's for the same reasons or not. It's just, it's interesting to me to see like on some of these policy issues, he's almost more aligned with people on the left than he is with people in his own party. Mm -hmm. It's just the way that he's conveying this. I mean, like he signed some of those bills you guys, you right, guys sent right. to him. But, but it's just here, very here, interesting. It's just, a, it's, but, but, it's but, here, but here's, here's the difference. So, I mean, we read in John Bolton's book that um, Trump basically says to President Xi in China that he has no problem with the concentration camps that he's housed the Uyghurs in. You know, Trump has said nothing about Tibet, done nothing to, never never asked to meet mm -hmm. with the Dalai Lama, has, you know, has, has been all but silent on Hong Kong. Uh, you know, I have no doubt that Donald Trump would sell human rights away if, you know, you know, if... China agreed to buy more soybeans from the United States. I mean, that's okay. that's I mean, that, that. So you know, so I, I'm interested in, in you know, uh, in maintaining a high standard of human rights. He's interested in money, um, period, mm -hmm. at the expense of human rights. You know, in in Afghanistan, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to get us out of there, but I'm not quite sure what he's doing. Well, that's true too. I'm not sure what, what's happening either. I don't know what he, what he's doing because I mean he's been saying for a year and a half or now that we're out of Afghanistan, and I don't think there's been any reduction of troops, and we're still there. And um, and I and the way he's doing it makes it almost seem like we don't care about the people of Afghanistan. You know, I want us out of there, but I want us to renegotiate. You know how we can be helpful uh, to the people of Afghanistan who have suffered so much, and, my, and some of it, by the way, as a result of our involvement uh, mm. in, in, in that war. You know, like I said, I co-chair the, the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission as well. So on human rights, we, 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 this president has so diminished our standing in the world. I mean, he's invited Duterte, who's a monster um, in the Philippines for a White House dinner. Duterte didn't want to come. So that was like, I mean, he is in love with the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia who dismembered and you know, a Washington right. Post journalist. He's he the person he no, said he's. I see he's what you're saying. I see, I he's see what you're saying. President Kim Jong Un, right? I mean, it's, it's disgusting. Look, um, I mean, I someone asked me on a radio interview. Can you, you know, you, you must have some agreement with Donald Trump. You must. I'm like, I, I don't even want to go there because I don't want to legitimize this person anymore. Uh, you know, I, mean, I don't want to give any legitimacy because he's not fit for office, and he has. And, and I'll be honest with you, I think he's ruined the Republican Party. Look, at, I'm a Democrat. I'm a, a liberal Democrat. But I've always admired the two great political traditions in our country, the Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservative tradition. I, I don't even know, you know, what Republicanism is anymore. And um, and I and I hope that, you know. Have you heard that, that from your Republican colleagues behind the scenes? Yeah, I, I some, I've talked to some who, you know, who are deeply concerned at what he has created here. You know, but the reality is, is that right now he is the Republican Party. I mean, it's not Republicanism, it's Trumpism right now. And if you're a Republican and you say, I don't like you, or please don't do that, well, then he'll go out and have you defeated in a primary. I mean, you know, he's the, he's backing a QAnon candidate and, you know, uh, for Congress who's going to be coming to Congress. I mean, there's no there's no principle. You know, there's no, and when there's no principle, there's no party. I mean, I always say that about the Democrat Party. If you don't stand for something, there's no principles. You know, then there's no party, and um, and the Republican Party has ceased to exist to me as a legitimate, you know, alternative in this country. It's it's become Trumpism, and uh, and I hope that they get it back. I I remember when you know you know George McGovern and Barry Goldwater used to have drinks together, 
Um, and, uh, <laughs> I can only imagine. I'm like left and right. I mean, you know, and in fact, Montgomery had this caricature of him and Goldwater. You know, they were, it, it was like a, they, their faces were imprinted on the American Gothic, you know, the, right. the yeah, right. And, it, and, and Goldwater signed it to George McGovern and says, Dear George, if you're going to lose, if you're going to lose, lose big. Love, Barry. <laughs> um, they, they both lost in landslides, right? Right. But, um, but McGovern always respected Barry Goldwater because he thought he was a man of principle. He, th- he thought he was batshit crazy on the fact that he wanted to, you know, build this military that was Dr. Strangelove would be impressed with. And McGovern was for somebody who wanted to cut the military. Exactly. But nonetheless, he said, I, I, I disagree with him profoundly, but he's a man of principle, right? And he loves this country. Right. And he and he thinks, you know, this is what is in the best interest of the country. I can't say that about Trump. I mean, at all. And I really am disappointed in many of my colleagues who have kind of gone along to get along because I really believe, to me, this is like a, this chapter in our history is, is, is like the chapter when Joe McCarthy was a prominent figure in this country. History is going to look back on this. And, and those who gave him cover, those who went along to get along, history is not going to look kindly on them. They're just not. This is a, this is a terrible chapter in our history. And I hope it ends in November, but it is a chapter that future generations are going to judge us on. Okay, so then let me just ask you this question. Why do you think so many people connect with President Trump? I get what you just said. I completely understand what you said. And I've heard lots of, I've heard a lot of criticism of President Trump. But why do you think there are so many people that connect with him on on the level? Is it because he's not your average politician? He doesn't really go out with talking points. What do you think it is about the style? Do you think other politicians can kind of adapt to become more relatable, maybe, I guess? I'm I, I'm not sure what it is about him, because I don't think the Republicans know either, and that's what kind of scares them. So Trump has, you know, has basically had it built on what Nixon did. I mean, um, he has made people who are well-off feel like they're victims. Um, he has scapegoated people based on the color of their skin. Um, he has demonized immigrants. Um, he has appealed to the worst instincts in people and and said things that, you know, uh, that some find entertaining. I mean, because he's outrageous and, and over, the, over the top. But he has appealed to a dark side in American culture that I had hoped was not as present as it appears to have been. And yeah, I mean, I get it. You know, there were people who uh, felt like Nobody was paying attention to them. There are lots of people who feel like they've been overlooked. And so there's a lot of people who voted for him because of that. And I get that. That I can understand. But the people that cheer at his rallies when he says lock her up or he refers to Elizabeth Warren in a blatantly racist term or when he, you know, uh, when he says things that are racist and um, I that I I don't even begin to understand. I, you know, my mother and father raised me to believe that everybody is important and mm-hmm. everybody deserves respect. And, you know, don't ever judge anybody because, you know, lest you be judged. And I mean, they just the way they raised me with, with those values. And I and I cringe when I hear him speak because I've got two kids. I've got a, a daughter who's, uh, you know, uh, you know, a freshman in college now. And I mean, I, oh, wow. and she's lived through all this. And I have a son who's you know graduated from college. But, you know, as you, and I'm like, you know, everything we have taught you you know, he's the opposite of. I mean, 
it's visited my son too. I mean, I mean the, the way Trump treats women, the way he speaks about um, political opponents. You're a loser. You know, you're a joke, and he makes fun of people. And that to me is, you know, I, I, I it is. I always tell people, you know, my entire life, mm-hmm. I've always respected the occupant of the White House, even when it's been somebody I strongly disagree with. I always respected their their being there and their that they were president. I don't feel that way now. I just I don't. I mean, I okay. So then here's a question: What? And I and I can see where you're coming from on this. And you know what? Article one is the first branch of the government for a reason, right? right. And in fact, I think the rules committee had a hearing last year on how the legislative branch can be more cohesive, can be stronger, right. can, can put up a bigger fight against the executive branch. And I right. love that hearing. That was a fascinating hearing. So what can the legislative branch do to be a counterweight to that executive? So, so one, one is we had a series of hearings planned that got interrupted because mm. of the pandemic. We need to continue them, um, and we need to legislate. Maybe put into our rules uh, some requirements on how we deal with issues of war, okay. how we deal with emergency powers. You know, my hope was originally that we could get something done prior to this election because we don't we would not know who the next president is going to be. Right. Uh, but you know, as much as I want, you know, I hope Joe Biden wins. But even if Joe Biden wins, we need, for the sake of the institution, reclaim our constitutional powers. That's the way it's supposed to be. You know, for a lot of members, quite frankly, they're just they're, they're okay with not having to vote on issues of war, uh, because if they vote the wrong way, they'll be held accountable. Uh, it's better just to let it, let someone else take the responsibility, and they can sit on the sidelines and say, "Oh, good choice, no bad choice, told you," you know, whatever. And I think that's the that's the dilemma. But we do need we we need to reclaim our rightful constitutional powers. We started that process. The pandemic derailed those hearings. We're going to go back to them and hopefully pass something um, that will, uh, you know, kind of make it clear what the ground rules are for uh, the next president and future presidents beyond that. Okay. And finally, because you've been so gracious and generous with your time, I asked Greg Walden this question. What is your favorite parliamentary tool? Reserving the right to object? Are you um, a parliamentary inquiry kind of guy? Um, <laughs> are you a strike the last word kind of person? What's your parliamentary go-to where you know nobody can mess with me if I use this? I do like the re- reserving the right to object. Close rule. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, parliamentary inquiry. I have used. Um, because you know, there's points in the debate when the debate ends, when someone may make an, Republicans may say something, and I don't really have an opportunity, you know, to be able to respond. So you do a parliamentary inquiry to be able to get the last word. You know, Mr. Speaker, does this, you know, <laughs> do this or that or whatever like that? They go, that's not a parliamentary inquiry. I know it isn't, but that's why I'm doing it. I want to get the last word in, but uh, <laughs> that's the end. But I'm not here to advocate abusing the rules, right? Because um, we. Um, you know, I, yeah, I just, I'll be close. With so, you know, we have a new parliamentarian. Uh-huh. Um, oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, yes. Tell yeah. us. But this process of getting the new parliamentarian, um, you know, Pelosi asked me to, to, you know, to kind of figure out how we proceed and, uh, you know, to look at our options. And so, you know, what I did is I said, okay, I, I don't want to do this alone because the parliamentarian is not just there for Democrats. They're there for Republicans too. Hey. So I had, I asked Tom Cole to sit in with me on the whole process 
you know, we, 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 we uh, ended up with Jason who we're really thrilled with, but both Cole and I, you know, you know, sat through like, uh, and we also had the head of the office of uh, diversity and inclusion in on this as well, but we sat through all of this and all of us at the end of it, we're like, boy, we, we just got a, a, an incredible lesson in parliamentary procedure and the importance of the parliamentarian's office. And I, I'll tell you, I appreciate them now more than ever, having having to have set through all this, the history lessons and these interviews and, you know, and all these questions. That office, again, it's like kind of, you said the Rules Committee, a lot of people don't know what the Rules Committee does. A lot of people don't know what the parliamentarian does, but it is a crucial part of our ability to operate. It is. And so, hopefully we'll turn people on to that. Yeah, and one of these we're thinking of doing is, is actually requiring, maybe asking them to address the Democratic Caucus and the Republican Conference so that incoming members actually know what the parliamentarian's office does and why they're so important. So Right. Well, I mean, if, if you guys decide to do that and, and think about maybe having a special breakoff session for reporters who cover Congress, because I know a lot of, I mean, I was a House page, so I got to yeah. know about rules on the floor. Sam Gibbons was there then, and he yeah. he objected to a lot of things very vociferously. But um, for people who cover Congress and don't understand what these rules are, what they mean, it can be very difficult to report on. Yeah. So, anyway, thank you again, Mr. McGovern. Be thank safe. you. Good to see you. We'll see yeah. you back in Washington. Exactly. Uh, we'll see you in Washington. Thank you. I'll be in yeah. touch, Jeff. Bye. That's Jim McGovern of Massachusetts Second District. A big thank you to Jeff Geringer for setting up the interview. And thanks so much to you for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can write to me at article1podcast at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at Molly Hooper. On the next episode, I speak with retiring Republican representative Francis Rooney, who says his party should take more ownership of environmental issues and has some sharp criticism of President Trump. Until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks. <laughs>